Welcome to Island Idols. I'm Barry Menikoff calling in from Honolulu, and you are... Aaron Menikoff calling in from Atlanta, and this is a podcast about books and life. Welcome back to Island Idols. We are here for episode number 35, and the topic of our conversation is Ernest Hemingway, And, Dad, before we get into another round of conversations about uh, a short story author, why don't you tell everybody how you're doing on the island of Oahu? Well, I'm doing pretty well. I mean, as you know, my grandson, your nephew, Teo, was here for six weeks. He was taking a couple of classes at one of the local schools, and... uh, so I was, I, I suddenly reverted to an old role that I'd forgotten I'd ever knew anything about, like parenting. It was more work than I thought it would be, but it was great fun, and it was nice having him around. So that was a real change of pace, and he seemed to have a good time. Well, you were able to welcome a child back into your home, and Dean and I are in the process of sending two kids out of the home. We moved in Rachel on Saturday and uh, she was here with us at church on Sunday, but now drove back today, and so she is out of the house, and Jonah heads off this coming Friday. So we're going from four kids down to two kids in just a few days. Well, that's great. It'll give you a little time to just see what life is like without, you know, you know, the overwhelming responsibility of a quadruple parenthood. It will be quieter, and... uh, but do you remember sending Carrie and Alec off to college? Yes, I do. Was it easy? Was it hard? It wasn't hard. You were kind of ready, or they were ready? They were ready, and uh, there was a little emptiness syndrome, but I got used to it. But they went so far away. I mean, that's right. Alec went. I mean, Alec went all the way to Pennsylvania. Carrie went to Oregon, and then Pennsylvania. I mean, that's quite a distance. Right. Well, they were independent chaps. That's what I raised them to be, independent. Well, you did a good job of that. And uh, speaking of independent, one doesn't get much more independent than this guy we're talking about today, Ernest Hemingway. So, Dad, uh, you've mentioned him a number of times as we've been talking about, you know, 20th century authors. Let's just start with a little bit of biography. Hemingway was born in Illinois in 1899 and cut his teeth writing for the Kansas City Star in 1917 before serving as an ambulance driver in World War I. And uh, that ended up becoming a lot of uh, content for his writing. Well, you know, about biographies go, I think, you know, it's interesting to note that Hemingway has probably got more biographies of any modern American author. I can't think of any that comes close. And he may have more biographies of any American author. The only competitor would be Mark Twain. So in the 20th century, Hemingway biography is a genre unto itself. He was a larger-than-life figure, and uh, it's understandable that uh, people would want to continually write about him. There was a recent uh, PBS show on Hemingway done by Ken Burns and uh, Lynn Novick, I think. Ken Burns, I should say, is not one of my 
I'm not a great fan of his, but I have to say that that biography, that show was quite impressive. And it did one thing that I, would, I was surprised they were able to do. I wouldn't have imagined it. They actually made Hemingway sympathetic as a person, which in, his bi- in the biographies they tend not to do. I mean, he had a, you know, his la- the last years of his life were pretty, pretty terrible. He had a lot of health problems, and he was uh, an alcoholic. And uh, so it doesn't portray a pretty picture of him. But we have to remember one thing. When we're talking about Hemingway, we're talking about an artist who changed the nature of American prose fiction in the 20th century. And that's why his name comes up continuously in these broadcasts, and it's interesting that we're coming around to him at the end rather than starting with him at the beginning, but that's fine. Well, we'll talk about his legacy in a moment, but when you say he was larger than life, is that with the little bit of research I did in trying to prepare us for this conversation, I couldn't help but think about Teddy Roosevelt, just someone who took uh, the world by the tail, and he seemed to be a man who just filled the room and sought after adventure. I read somewhere that he had a great affinity for Tolstoy because Tolstoy had actually been in war and therefore had the credentials to write about war. And that was something that Hemingway shared with Tolstoy. And he spent so much of his life traveling and he seemed like he wasn't settled in any one place. He just wanted to see the world. Well, there's no question about it. Look, I mean, in terms of figures, Hemingway was a a figure that was in his for his contemporaries. He was larger than life. I mean, he was extraordinarily good looking as a young man. He had enormous skills that most people don't have who are in the educated, shall we say, classes. I mean, he had a lot of experience fishing. He had a lot of experience hunting. So he could do things that a lot of people, you know, growing up, say, in more privileged and somewhat sheltered homes could not do. And then he went to war, and then he was a skier. He sought adventure, as you say, and uh, and everybody recognized it. And he also was, you know, he took up, you know, he was the one that popularized bullfighting for uh, an Anglo world when he wrote his book, Death in the Afternoon, in which he comes up with the phrase, Grace Under Pressure. So Hemingway was recognized by people, his contemporaries, as being extraordinary. And these are, you know, his contemporaries were no, they were not small fry. You know, these were important figures. John Dos Passos, you know, Fitzgerald. Everybody, you know, uh, recognized him for being extraordinary. And, uh, you know, so that's why the biographies are all there. So he's known as being a leader of this lost generation, these writers who spent a lot of time in Paris in the 20s. Dad, could you explain for us what is the lost generation and where did Hemingway fit? Well, the lost generation was a phrase that Gertrude Stein applied to these people. And Hemingway used it in his memoir of Paris, A Movable Feast. He quoted Gertrude Stein saying, you are all a lost generation. But the the larger meaning of that phrase, as it's come to be understood by writers and uh, critics, is that this was a generation who came of age in the First World War. And coming of age in that First World War, one of the things they learned was that everything that came before them 
was a lie or hypocritical or had to be discarded. And so much of 19th century literature was thrown, you know, into the dustbin by them. And they find they wanted to enjoy the world as they experienced it. And um, the sense of purpose of, you know, having objectives in life was something that was, uh, shall we say, problematic. And, of course, Hemingway's first great, uh, great work or the second great work, The Sun Also Rises, the novel, really uh, typifies or represents that experience. People read that book and say, well, what goes on in this book? All they do is they go from one bar to another. They drink in one bar. They go to another bar and drink in the other bar. By the time they're in the third bar, they're drunk. They make love, and then they wake up and start all over again doing the same thing. So that's what they're living for. And uh, that became the people's notion of the lost generation. So, Dad, was it a lost generation? Am I right in thinking that, you know, if you were someone who actually saw the Great War, you were either, you know, he was an ambulance driver. These writers undoubtedly had friends and loved ones lost in the war. Was it a lost generation in the sense of, you know, once you've lived through something that cataclysmic, it's very difficult to sort of get up and, and clock in, clock out at a nine-to-five job. So uh, it's a lost generation. That's exactly correct. Okay. And you saw this, we saw this in Fitzgerald too. Remember in that story we read, uh, Bay Day? He has the two soldiers that have uh, come back from the war and they're just hanging around in the restaurant trying to find a way to get some booze and, you know, forget about what's going on in the world. Now... You know, it could be complicated. I mean, I don't want to reduce it to a simple expression of people who simply got through the war and then had nothing to live for. But Hemingway typified this in a lot of his fiction. He wrote about it. So in one of his great early stories in uh, in our time called Soldier's Home, it's a story about a soldier coming back from the war to his home in somewhere in the Middle West. And, of course... His parents don't recognize him or understand him, and of course he doesn't recognize his parents and understand them. He can't tell them about the war because it makes no sense to them, and all they want him to do is be the way he was before he went to war. So that disconnect between you know, the people who experienced war and the people who sent their, you know, their family to war and then expect them to be the same when they came back was very dramatic, and Hemingway dramatized that in that one great story. If you think about a group of people living together and, and living life and, and not really seeing a great purpose, I can't help but think of, you know, situation comedies like Friends or, you know, or Seinfeld. The description you have of The Sun Also Rises makes me think of these sort of silly TV shows where all people do is talk and, and drink and laugh about nothing, but no connection between Hemingway. Well, the difference is the experience of people who came back from that war and lived through it and saw all the people that were killed by it is quite different. Well, right. Take away the war. <laughs> Take away the right. That's the profound explanation. There's no explanation for Friends and Seinfeld, but that's a topic for another day. Uh, we're going to talk about his writing, just a couple great things that he said. He was talking to someone about The Sun Also Rises. He said it, it took him just six weeks to write The Sun Also Rises, but five months to edit it. That's a good lesson for writers, isn't it, Dad? 
Well, I mean, Hemingway is the model for that. They say that uh, he wrote the last chapter of uh, of Farewell to Arms uh, over 39 times or something like that, I think. Uh, They actually recently published a new version of Farewell to Arms with what they found was to be one of the chapters in the manuscript library. You know, Hemingway's manuscripts are in the Fitzgerald Kennedy, John Fitzgerald Kennedy Library in, in Boston. But he had no patience for these sort of long, difficult words. I mean, he wanted to be direct, straightforward, punchy, descriptive, but not too descriptive. Is that the way you'd put it? He wanted to make the reader experience the event or the experience that he was describing. He did not want to tell them about the experience. He wanted them to experience it through the reading process. That was his great objective. And to do that, he stripped down the language. He stripped away the adjectives and the adverbs. And he brought things down to as simple a a manner as he could achieve. And so it became a style that was very easy to imitate and mock but it's very hard to actually create and duplicate that style itself. I mean, in its purest form, it's uh, masterful and really exceptional. The, uh, you see this, of course, in the first collection of short stories called In Our Time, which really established Hemingway's style and uh, created the, uh, the manner that we identify. Everybody that, when they read In Our Time, everybody recognized his contemporaries that he had created something that was original. And everybody tried to follow him. So when were you first introduced to him? I mean, he died in 1961. Did you know much about him before his death? Was he a figure in your childhood? Absolutely. I mean, Hemingway was the second. The first was Jack London, but Hemingway vastly surpassed him. Hemingway was the first major writer to sort of become a celebrity. Well, of course, you know, Fitzgerald became a celebrity in one way, but Hemingway worked at it. You know, Hemingway, Fitzgerald was a celebrity because of what he did. Hemingway wanted to be a celebrity. He wanted to be in the newspapers. He wanted to be interviewed. He wanted to be known. And he became, and and he succeeded at that. And so there was nobody growing up in my generation who wasn't aware of Hemingway. And I became, my first introduction to him, I wrote about this in Stone Mother, was the book uh, A Farewell to Arms, which in many ways some people say uh, was his greatest novel. There was a great writer at the University of Hawaii, Ian McMillan, and he was a marvelous writer. And I remember vividly being in the bathroom, which is where often incidents occur, conversations. And I had, I was teaching, you know, a fa- I was I had a farewell to arms in my, in my, on the counter, in the washroom counter. I was obviously using it for a course. And Ian comes in and he sees the book. And without missing a beat, he recites the opening paragraph from A Farewell to Arms, cold, to the letter, from beginning to end. That was the kind of effect that Hemingway had on our generation. And I remember when he had the plane crashes in Africa. So just amazingly popular. Yes, 
He was amazingly popular, but he was uh, regarded with, with admiration by anybody who wanted to be a writer or who tried writing. Because, you know, when they tried writing, you could read Hemingway and you could learn things. As I've said this before in these, in these conversations, it's very hard to learn from Fitz, Scott Fitzgerald. But Hemingway was somebody who was easy to learn from. Now, whether you could duplicate it is another story. All right. So, Dad, let's talk about a few of his stories. And, you know, when he introduces his own stories, this collection of 49 short stories, you know, he acknowledges that uh, that he likes them all. He says, I wouldn't have published them if I didn't like them. I like them all. He said, I like some better than others. And uh, he said they're different. And I think one of the different stories is his short story called The Killers which is, I would say, it's, it's basically, it's all plot about these two mercenaries who show up at a diner and uh, they are, they're looking for someone they've been hired to kill and he never shows up, but they terrify the waiter and, uh, and the cook and, uh, you know, you think they're going to murder them, but eventually they leave and they, the waiter ends up going, not the waiter, but maybe a guest in the restaurant, ends up tracking down, tracking down Ole Anderson, who's a boxer. And so we don't know exactly what happened. Maybe the boxer lost a bet. Maybe he was supposed to throw a fight and he didn't. Maybe he was supposed to win a fight and he didn't. But they're after him. They want to kill him. And he's resigned. He's basically resigned to let them find him and kill him. He's not even going to fight it. And when Nick reports this to, you know, his friends at the diner, they're, I don't know if you would say they're nonchalant or they're dismissive or they just don't want to think about it. They just don't want to, they don't want to countenance the idea that someone could be, you know, hunted down and killed and not try to run away. And that's sort of the end of the story. Yes. And, you know, it's a story that, by the way, is made into a film, an early film with Burt Lancaster. So that was, you know, many of Hemingway's work was translated into film. I wouldn't say it was plot, though. I mean, it looks like plot, but it's really all dialogue. You know, Hemingway really, what he's done is he's mastered dialogue, and people don't seem to be saying anything. You know, the conversation is, is not revealing. It's not substantive. So it's how real people talk often. To some degree, yes. Although one, one could argue that if you really follow Hemingway's dialogue, it's not the way people talk. Okay. But anyway, it sounds like it's the way people talk. But it's a very stylized form of dialogue. And what Hemingway is really getting at is uh, implication. You know, it's not what they say, but what is implied. What they don't say, you see, that really is Hemingway's tactic. You know, he uses the expression, he says that, you know, writing is like an iceberg, and all you see is the tip of the iceberg, one-eighth of it. So the rest of the iceberg, the rest of the writing, the meaning is beneath the surface. It's not visible on the page. You have to interpret what is, be, what is not said. And this is where Hemingway becomes, uh, this is where Hemingway's style has become so successful. And why, one of the things that's really, one of the things that's unusual, if you take a writer and they have a big vocabulary, and that vocabulary gets into into their fiction or their prose, over time, a lot of that 
vocabulary, as we talked about in the dictionaries, the words change meaning. You know, they lose their meaning or they get, uh, you know, they disappear. Hemingway, or they get, you know, the vocabulary can get dated. So when you read an older book, it sounds they're using words you say, boy, that's a word nobody ever uses anymore. In Hemingway, one of the great achievements, I think, is none of his writing is dated. I mean, if you read the stories about the First World War, unless you knew that it was the First World War, there's nothing in the expression that tells you it's the First World War. You have to know because the writing and the expression is as vivid today as it was when he wrote it. Now, that's an extraordinary achievement. Okay, that is remarkable. But let's go back to the killers for a sec, Dad, because what you said intrigued me. Put your, I don't know that you ever take your professor hat off, but put your professor hat on for a moment. You've got a group of kids in the classroom. They read the killers, and you're telling them sort of the genius of Hemingway is what the characters don't say. Not what they do say, but what they don't say. What's implied. So how would you lead a group of people to be thinking and pondering about what these characters didn't say? I mean, how exactly do you do that in a classroom setting? You're putting me on the spot here, but let's back off for a second. One of the things, in all three stories, there is one central theme, death. These are all stories about death. Now, The Killers is a story about violent death in the sense that these two people are coming to murder somebody. The Snows of Kilimanjaro is a story about death, you know, that has been accidental but uh, is nonetheless, you know, inevitable. And A Clean, Well-Lighted Place is a story about death that hasn't happened, that is not going to happen, but that is wished for on the part of the central character. So one of Hemingway's major themes throughout his life has been death. How do we face death? How do people face death? Now the reasons for dying are, you know, manifold. But the question is how do people face up to it? Do they become, you know, weak? Do they become cowardly? Do they start groveling? Do they start acting, you know, with this sort of kind of braggadocio? Ole Anderson, we don't know why. He singled out for death because obviously he's been working in a business which is ripe with corruption. What is prize fighting? It's a gangster-ridden business. And whatever happened, we don't know. You know, the cook speculates, well, maybe he double-crossed somebody. You know, you said maybe he took a bath or maybe... Whatever it is, it's there. It's implicit. And the consequence of it is he's, he's marked for death. And people are hiring. These people, these killers don't know who he is. They have no connection with him. It's not personal. You know, they're not, uh, they don't know him from Adam. But their job is to kill, for hire. And so that's what they're there. And, you know, and then you see the kind of reactions that people have, ordinary people. Why are you doing this? The cook says, you know, why are you doing this? And like they want an answer. And there's no answer. He doesn't, they don't have an answer. So they keep mocking him. Yeah, they're flabbergasted that someone could be resigned to die. That seems to be... Well, Nick is. But Nick is, you see, the main character, the young boy that comes of age in the stories in our time. And he brings him back in this story. Uh, the killers. So Nick is still a young boy, uh, not quite, a, you know, facing manhood, but not yet a man. And he's trying to make sense 
of, of all of this, which he can't really, but he does have the instinct. He says, I've got to get out of this town. And the cook says, yeah, you have to get out. And the others are about as resigned to it as they could possibly be, though, the other characters in The Killers. Don't mess with my life. I mean, I'm just, I'm slinging hash here. Six o'clock, we have dinner. And, you know, they keep mocking. The killers are mocking, you know, George. They keep saying, bright boy, bright boy, bright boy. Which really a way of saying, you know, you don't know, you know, your ass from your elbow. I mean, you don't know what's going on. You know, you're trying to, you know, so they keep, you know, because his questions, his answers are all ridiculous as far. Now, you know, so there's that little contrast between even though they're killers, they're also coming from the big city into the small town. They've got these nice double-breasted coats they're wearing, a little too tight, which means they're a little, there's a certain amount of vanity there. I mean, there are all of these issues, or shall we say, incidents and details that you see in the story without ever being said. Does that answer your question? Right. Well, that's that does. Now, I think one of the most famous short stories he must have written was The Snows of Kilimanjaro. It got to be one of his most popular short stories. And you're right. This one is clearly one of his greatest. And so here you've got Harry. Now, is it would you describe this as autobiographical? Yes, to some degree. Yeah, to some degree, it's autobiographical. I mean, because the, the main character, Harry, is, is a writer. And as I read it, a couple themes really popped out to me. One is certainly the theme of death, because Harry is dying. He was out photographing, I think, a wildebeest, and he got scratched on his leg by a thorn. He didn't treat it. Lo and behold, his leg is infected. He treated it improperly. Okay, and there's an infection that is taking over and they are, they're out in the bush in Africa and he simply cannot get medical care in time to save his life. And he's there with his wife and uh, she has, they married later in life and she funded his life and, you know, didn't sound like the, the warmest of relationships, but she cared for him and I think at some level he cared for her and so but he's dying. Meanwhile, he's thinking about all the things he didn't write. Yes, yeah, so it's a, I mean, this is, you know, I've, uh, obviously I've, I've read this a number of times, but I just reread it very, very recently for this. And, I, you know, I think it's one of his greatest short stories. It's one of his longer ones. You know, Hemingway's short stories are usually very short. I mean, they never run to more than four or five pages. You know, turn the page and your story's over. This one is a little more extensive. And uh, I'm, I was amazed at, uh, he's at the top of his game here with this story, which is written in the mid-30s. Uh, from the description of the camp, the description of the, the natural setting, you know, the trees, the hills, the plain, the animals, marvelously simple yet eloquent and then he ties into this you know this story about the death i mean what is he really saying he's saying what is death death is really it's arbitrary it's capricious i mean he's not dying because he had a long illness he's not dying because he did something terrible and he's being revenged he's dying because he scratched himself and he treated it improperly and the truck is you know has been burned is the bearings have been burned out because they didn't hire a good mechanic. And the 
They can't get a plane in in time. And so the gangrene is set in. And the inevitability, the slow inevitability of this death is purely, purely capricious. Which is, in other ways, saying it's a quirk of fate. It has no meaning. Absolutely no meaning. I want to talk about the death. But before we talk about the death, I want to talk about the, the regret that I perceived as I read this notes of Kilimanjaro. He has these interludes in italics where he's reflecting on past events. And you get a sense that as he's on, it was not a sense, I think he communicates really clearly. He's on his deathbed and he is communicating that he never fully lived up to his potential. That he had this gift. So he had a couple things. Number one, he's got this gift. He's a gifted writer. But sometimes he got lazy and traded on his reputation instead of actually producing the best quality work he could possibly produce. On the other hand, not only does he have this gift, and this is what I thought was really interesting, he had all these stories. His life, his mind was full of stories not yet written. And uh, to me, that was really a marvelous way of thinking about creativity. Because so often when I think of creativity, I think of someone sitting at a table and sort of scratching their head and trying to figure out something to write. And instead, at least this character, Harry, seems to have experienced so much that there were so many stories he, he wanted to write. They were in there ready to be written, but it was too late because he's about, he's about to die. So two really complicated ideas, one being sort of... Um, this is an interesting theme that you're raising, and of course it's central to the story, uh, a waste of talent. We saw this, Fitzgerald expresses the same you know, worry. Am I wasting my talent by, you know, spending so much time partying? Am I wasting it by, you know, writing, you know, hack work instead of devoting myself to more serious, you know, subjects? Look, said that Hemingway married, tended to marry, well, his second wife was rich. His first wife actually had money, too. He makes it, makes it seem as if he was poor in Paris with her, but he wasn't really. But anyway, his second wife was rich. And so Hemingway had a love-hate relationship with this world. On the one hand, he tended to be disdainful of them because they just had a lot of money, they drank a lot, and he didn't think they did anything, you know, really useful. On the other hand, he liked the life, he liked the access to all of this, shall we say, material pleasure, and uh, he lived it. So on the one hand, he's living off the rich, and on the other hand, he's, you know, biting the hand that feeds them by, you know, being contemptuous of it and disdainful of it. And then, of course, he starts to worry. In the figure of Harry, as you said, is he wasting himself by, you know, just uh, living the good life? And, and then he brings up a reference to Fitzgerald in here when he talks about the Julian. Poor Julian said, wrote the story, the rich are very different from you and me. And somebody told him, yes, they have more money. But here's a very interesting thing. What I think is brilliant about this story is he talks about all the stories he hasn't written. But yet, in a masterful way, he writes the stories in those italics. He tells the stories in a kind of miniature form. The most minimalist, the most reduced, 
form in which he creates these pictures of that la, that Laplace in Paris, which is, you know, inhabited by whores and drunkards and people who are just starting to get by. He gives us the picture of that little place. He gives us the picture of Paris when, you know, it's wet and when, you know, you can walk through the streets and when you can, you know, it's a marvelous, uh, I think, device and it's absolutely brilliant because on the one hand he says I, I can't live to tell these stories and then on the other hand he's telling those stories yeah it's like saving it's like saving little snapshots but Deb I don't know where I heard this but I have it in my mind someone describing a master sculptor and the, the description I have is that the, the sculptor doesn't look at the piece of stone and try and, and create the masterpiece he simply tries to chip away the part of the stone that is not the masterpiece. In other words, he has such a complete view of what he's wanting to accomplish that all he needs to do is, is sort of bring it to the light by chipping away what's not it. And I felt like that as Hemingway was describing, you know, the way Harry thought about writing. He had all these stories and, uh, you know, they were there like complete works of art, simply needing the time to be unearthed. And yet, although he recorded them, one still gets the sense that as he's lying on his deathbed, he wanted to do even more. He wanted to give them even more attention and more time. Well, you know, the interesting thing about that is that's an issue that's not, you know, that's not peculiar or you know, that's not singular with Hemingway. I think of Henry James's great story, The Middle Years, in which an older writer is sitting there and his book has just been published and it's brought to him and he's reading the book, not a published book, in bound. He's reading the book and he's correcting it while he's there, you know, on his, you know, he's recuperating, he's got some illness and he doesn't want to let it be. And he thinks, ah, now I see what I did wrong. My next book. So he thinks he'll keep going on, but of course he's not going to be a next book. He's dying, you see. Dad, let me give you a, so here's a description of, here's Hemingway personifying, I don't know if you would say personifying death, I don't know if personification is quite the right way to put it, death is, a, is an animal, really, but this is what he writes as Harry draws close to the end. It moved up closer to him still, and now he could not speak to it, and when it saw he could not speak, it came a little closer, and now he tried to send it away without speaking. But it moved in on him, so its weight was all upon his chest, and while it crouched there and he could not move or speak, he heard the woman say, Buana is asleep now, take the cot up very gently and carry it into the tent. So he's in and out of consciousness, and death is described as a foul-breathed, you know, hyena, yeah, resting, resting on his chest. And then you have the vultures at the very beginning of the story who start to alight and step down on the ground and they're, you know, it's facing them. But, you know, the picture of the artist, because it is in a way also a portrait of an artist, is what you're talking about. You know, his sense of, uh, his sense of shame and guilt and at the same time, you know, his relations with people. And he talks about lies all the time, how much he lied lies to the women, he lies to his wives, you know, he lies to himself. But the only place, and this is what Hemingway always said, the only place where the truth is, is in the writing. 
You know, he's got a famous line. He says, to write one true sentence. It can be parodied a lot, but that's a famous line from Hemingway, to write one true sentence. And that's what people admire about him. They don't admire the life so much or his, you know, his complicated relations with women, with men. You know, he basically, you know, you know, walked away from all his good friends. But no one could quarrel with his commitment to the writing. And, of course, as he got older in his old last years, you know, he was in such bad health. And he couldn't really, he couldn't maintain the writing. He was too sick. Uh, and he had suffered from depression. And his family history of suicide. So when he uh, took his life, you know, that summer in... Uh, Everybody, you know, sort of was, you know, people said, oh, well, the great man, you know, the great fighter and everything committed suicide. But I think he felt that uh, there was nothing he could do anymore. There was nothing to live for anymore. Dad, the uh, Harry, in retrospect, in one of his, his memories says, there was so much to write. He had seen the world change, not just the events, although he had seen many of them and had watched the people. But he had seen the subtler change, and he could remember how the people were at different times. He had been in it, and he had watched it, and it was his duty to write of it. But now he never would. I think that's a great, that was a great passage, I thought, because he's, you know, I was particularly struck with that when I read that this time. Because writing a memoir, I saw that that resonated with me. You could see the changes over time in people, you know. People think that change is all material. You know, now we have a computer before you had a, you know, a typewriter. But they don't see the changes in behavior and how people just think and feel and respond differently because of the different times they live in. And I think that's what Hemingway was, uh, was suggesting in that line, that Harry knew he'd been through everything. He'd, he'd seen war. He'd seen, you know, he'd seen life and, you know, what is the... Uh, Johnny Mitchell song from both side down, you know, both sides. And uh, now he was no hero. He was not going to be able to do anything about it. So it's kind of sad. Yeah. What have you seen change? I mean, how would you describe in broad brushstrokes the changes to people that you've witnessed in your lifetime? Oh, wow. That's a subject for a different uh, conversation but I was actually okay and just I'll give you an example because I was just writing about our crowd in Wisconsin and my contemporaries the people we were like and one of the things I said was that uh, most they we prized modesty and I said uh, I thought I was very clever I said uh, no one cared to emulate Harry James blowing above the circus now somebody would say, who was Harry James? Harry James was a great jazz trumpeter, and he, he blew a tremendous trumpet, and it's because he actually worked in a circus, and he had to blow above the noise to be, to be heard. So nobody's going to recognize that. But the point was nobody cared to emulate Harry James blowing above the circus. And then I said, I said, but time changes all things, and modesty was not made for survival. <laughs> so... That's an attitude that's changed. You would say that you look at the world and you see more self-congratulation, more self-promotion. Uh, well, I mean, do, I don't have to say that. I mean, that's fairly obvious, isn't it? Right. And it came about in my, I was in English, but, you know, shortly after we left, I mean, that was, uh, 
you know, people were told to promote yourself. My uh, back when I was in the when I worked in the Senate, my senator was well known for modesty. He was not one to talk about his accomplishments. And there was a younger senator who was very prone to to distribute press releases, which would, you know, which would list the things he'd accomplished. And I remember I wasn't really part of the conversation, but I remember being near a conversation where it was clear that that was just not appropriate. You know, one did not do that. You know, this was in the mid '90s, and now you can't, you know, open a website of a of a politician without having all the accomplishments listed. And it's not that it's not that his accomplishments weren't known, but he had a careful relationship with his success. It was a different age. Well, that's what I think Hemingway is talking when he when Harry says the subtle changes. He'd seen them, and I'm sure he's thinking about many more complicated things. But uh, when you grow up in it, when you're in it, you don't see it as a change because it's, it's who you are, it's what you know, and it's what you've learned. You see, it's only with time. That's why, you know, traditionally wisdom was something that presumably came with age because you've already seen much. But one of the things that changed too was, for example, when I was in school, I mean, we looked up to older professors, over time, that changed. You know, younger professors were not interested in older professors. What did they have to offer since they were old? You see, all they wanted to know was what their colleagues, what their cohort was doing. And so older professors were just there. They were taking up space in the department, but they were not somebody you had to pay attention to. That was very different. It was just a change. That was a change. Well, it seems like, it seems to me that the wisdom is if you're able to, you know, live long enough and discern changes in behavior and changes in attitude and you're able to to somehow trace that and make observations what you're able to do simultaneously is observe the things that don't change and it's in the ability to discern what does change and what doesn't change that i think i think that's where kind of wisdom can be found you know you can you can sort of get to the kernel of things if you're able to separate you know, that which can change from that which can't. Because we know that people are basically the same. It's not like something, you know, happened in the 60s that made people fundamentally different. But there were definitely circumstances and trials and things that changed outward behavior. And uh, being able to observe both of those things, that which does change and that which doesn't change, I think it's really, it's a really, really helpful. Well... Yes, I would agree with you. One of the things I think that's great about uh, Hemingway's early short stories is when you read them, I mean, they're written about, you know, his experience in the war, his experience, you know, hunting, fishing. When you read them and you experience them the way he's describing them, it seems timeless. You know, you could be out there with, uh, with Nick in Big Two-Hearted River you know, trying to, you know, go on a fishing trip and trying to recover yourself today. Do you think it's helpful to, to ponder death the way Hemingway so obviously does? Do you think it's helpful to ponder death for the average reader to take a few minutes and think about the inevitability of death? Well, I'm not sure how to answer that. Of course, mortality is a subject that, you know, people at a certain age become more conscious of and more sensitive to. A young person would be a little, it would be a little strange for a young person to be brooding over death in one sense. 
but except intellectually. But you take the story like a clean, well-lighted place, and you know there's a philosophical, you know, underpinning to that story. What is life about? What does it mean? And he keeps going over and you know parodying all these prayers, and you know. Everything is nada. Everything is nothing. You know, we, you know, our life, our Lord in heaven, nada be thy name. It's a view of a kind of existential view of life that suggests meaning is absent. You know, Hemingway was very popular among the French existentialists. They all loved him. Not because he would gone to school at the Sorbonne and had studied, you know, with Gabriel Marceau. It's because in his fiction they found a kind of expression of what they were trying to argue. That the universe is absurd and the only meaning is one which you can apply to it yourself. So for Hemingway you developed the idea of the code. You certainly lived a certain way and you observed certain principles, and you did certain things because that was the way a person of, of dignity and integrity lived. And, uh, you know, Hemingway, you know, we don't even think of the things that Hemingway has said that have passed into popular expression. When people say, oh, when you, you know, if you fail or something or you make a mistake, your mistakes will make you stronger, you know. That comes from Hemingway. It comes from a farewell to arms, you see. The world tries to break you, and it breaks most people, but those who it don't, doesn't break, it makes them stronger in the broken places. That's Hemingway. I said grace under pressure. The idea of the kind of stoic attitude towards life, which Hemingway represents at his best, you know, that you accept things as they are, and you face them with the kind of, whatever kind of indignity or courage you can. So Dad, in a clean, well-lighted place, you've got a young waiter and an older waiter, and they're closing up a cafe in Spain. Is it Spain? Yes. So they're closing up a cafe. There's one older gentleman who is, who's there, and the young man really wants to shoo him out so he can close up the cafe. The older waiter understands because he's older, he's lived life, and he's experienced sorrow, that a clean, well-lighted place, a comfortable cafe, is a nice place to live and to be, to experience respite, and to find the, the little bit of solitude that the world has to offer. He offers solace to this man who is, has, has nothing in his life. And the younger man, of course, can't understand it because he's got his wife, you know, he wants to go and, you know, make love. The older man, of course, has his own problems, domestic problems, which we see because when he leaves the cafe, he goes out for a coffee. He doesn't go immediately home. So he has a sympathetic identification with the man that's coming to the cafe who had tried to commit suicide earlier and who is deaf and so has nothing to live for. But the older man is trying to introduce the younger waiter. The older waiter is trying to introduce the younger waiter to some of these codes. And he says, look, he drinks without sipping, without spilling. You know, so he knows how to observe the ritual of drinking his brandy. You see, that's a value. The older way, the younger way, of course, is not interested in that. I mean, he's too busy to pay attention to that. But that's a little lesson that the older way there is trying to pass along to him. 
He says he's not causing a disturbance. He actually has a kind of dignity to him. The younger way that talks to him as if he can't understand them. The old man is deaf, but the younger way that talks to him as if he can hear him. Right. At the very end of the story, you quoted from it already by memory, the older waiter is coming to terms with the things that he's actually telling this younger waiter. And Hemingway writes, what did he fear? It was not fear or dread. It was nothing that he knew too well. It was all a nothing and a man was nothing too. It was only that, and light was all it needed, and a certain cleanness and order. Some lived in it and never felt it, but he knew it all was nada, e pues nada, e nada, e pues nada, our nada who art in nada, nada be thy name, thy kingdom nada, thy will be nada, and nada as it is in nada. Give us this nada, our daily nada, and nada us our nada, as we nada our nadas and nada us into nada, but deliver us from nada, pues nada. Hail nothing, full of nothing. Nothing is with thee. He smiled and stood before a bar with a shining steam pressure coffee machine. And I think you you obviously hit it on the head, and there's nothing complicated or confusing about that passage, is there? No, except that he's mocking all the cliches, or shall we say, all the accepted little bits of wisdom that are passed on in the culture by, you know, introducing that word nada into into all their expressions. He's clearly saying that uh, there is no meaning in life, that the best we can do is enjoy a moment of solace and comfort in a clean, well-lighted place. And uh, any attempt to find a meaning outside, a meaning to life outside of yourself is foolish because at the end of the day, what can any of us know outside of our, our own minds? And that's what Hemingway taught. Well, this is why, you know, when they first started writing about Hemingway, they started to try to define a code, and that became an early, an early expression of the criticism of Hemingway. What is the code? And, you know, people tried to follow it and live up to that style. And, you know, now we say the degradation of it became the, the idea of masculinity and machismo and Hemingway, you know, big game hunter and everything. And, and that became the way in which they would, uh, shall we say, simplify and in a way falsify what Hemingway was really saying. I mean, he wasn't... Hemingway, if you read his stories, is very sensitive to women. I mean, that's not a popular conception of Hemingway. He's very sensitive in his stories to women. I mean, we talked earlier in this term, in this conversation about the, the story Hills Like White Elephants, where it's the young girl that's pregnant that is the, really the one that is sympathetic. And the young boy who's asking, the young man is asking it to get an abortion is the one that, you know, bears the brunt of Hemingway's criticism and satire. So it's not really machismo, you know, but it is a belief that, you know, a certain set of code of behavior is required of us if we're going to live in a world which is so chaotic and which is so capricious and in which death, you know, haunts us and haunts us at any moment with our, with, without expectation, without our knowing how to do anything about it. But what's interesting to me is that on one hand you have Hemingway so clearly articulating the meaninglessness of life. It's wrapped up in the reality that, you know, we don't do a very good job reacting to death. Death sneaks up on us. We're ill-prepared for it. And even when we know it's coming, 
the best we can do is try and find a little bit of solace in a clean, well-lighted place. And so he promotes this idea that there really is no fundamental transcendent meaning. But at the same time, there is this code that you keep talking about. There is a code. There is an ethic that, you know, sure, we transgress. But nonetheless, it's something that we should aspire to maintain and to improve upon. Well, this is what the existentialists said. This is why they, they said this. That's why they were so attracted to Hemingway, because they believed you gave meaning to your life. Meaning wasn't, you know, assigned to you by birth. It wasn't assigned to you transcendently. It was assigned to you by yourself. You gave it meaning and you learned to give it meaning. And that's what made your life. That's what separated you from people whose lives were lived, you know, chaotically and without any purpose. And this was what Camus, you know, argued. This is what uh, Sartre argued, what Simone de Beauvoir argued. And uh, this is why I think they found Hemingway attractive. I'm not saying that they exactly... But I suppose, again, yeah, but the question that I have is, it gets back to the idea that at the end of the day, Hemingway and these existentialists are promoting a way of looking at the world that is just as doctrinal as any religion's way of looking at the world. Well, of course, if you're saying they have a manifesto, they have a belief system, yes. Exactly. But the difference is, so there's an interview, the famous Lillian Ross interview that I actually alluded to earlier in The New Yorker. And did you read it, Dad? Oh, years ago. Years ago. Well, it's still online, and she was an amazing reporter. And uh, so he's 50 years old, and this is what he says. He says, only suckers worry about saving their souls. Who the hell should care about saving his soul when it is a man's duty to lose it intelligently, the way you would sell a position you were defending if you could not hold it as expensively as possible, trying to make it the most expensive position that was ever sold. It isn't hard to die. So here you have such disdain towards someone saying, I think there is a transcendent reality. I think you were made by someone to whom you are accountable. I think you should be concerned about the salvation of your soul. Like, I think it's totally legitimate to present an existentialist worldview and say life is meaningless and really the best you can do is try to ingest a little meaning into it. But just the audacity to say, if you don't agree with me, you're a sucker. So defend him. I'm not going to defend Hemingway. I will say this. Lillian Ross suckered Hemingway in that interview. I mean, Hemingway was a creature devoted, you know, at that period of in his life. You know, he wasn't his best spokesman. And uh, that interview, you know, really cast a real, uh, you know, a real bad, bad mark on him. Now, whether you want to hold that line to whether you want to hold that line. Unless she misquoted him. I'm sure she didn't misquote him, but I'm saying if you want to hold him to task for that, there are many more things you can hold him to task for in those last years. You know, the thing is, Hemingway, what was he? He was 61 or 62 or so when he died. I mean, he... Well, I think 61. You know, he looked like he was 80. 
You know, when he was 50, he looked like he was 70. I mean, he had terrible, terrible last years. And he was his own, you know, he was his own self-destructor. So that's why I said the thing about the Hemingway, you know, PBS series that they showed. They made him more sympathetic than I think most biographers are prepared to do. But having said that, I think his writing stands on its own. Well, Dad, I think his ability to describe how people feel, his ability to communicate things about regret, to meditate on death, I mean, I think they are simply superb. And I thoroughly enjoy, you know, reading him. But I think that at the same time, he is a preacher. And I think what's really captivated me about the authors that, you know, you've encouraged me to read is frankly how doctrinal they are. And I don't know how else to put it, but they are as dogmatic about their worldview as I, as, you know, a Protestant Christian, am dogmatic about my worldview. And so even taking, you know, his sucker comment off the table, it's a fantastic, even if I think flawed and harmful, but it's a fantastic attempt to explain reality and provide people a means to cope, which ironically is exactly the critique, right, of Christianity or even other world religions. What do they do? Well, life is hard, so here's something that you can think about and meditate on, and it's gonna help you get through another day. And are they, well, what is that if not the basic, you know, theme of these stories? You know, hey, just, you can get through it, don't worry, you know, gird your loins and, you know, stiff up your lip and, you know, don't worry too much. Well, I think you put it very well. I don't, you know, I'm disinclined to use the word doctrinal as you do for the writers because I don't think they have that kind, that sense of uh, delivering a, uh, a message. But I could be wrong. I, I could be unwilling to see it and I'm willing to recognize that once you describe the mentality of the work, that maybe it does sink. It does come to be a doctrine. I mean, I certainly view it that way. I mean, when I was a kid, when I thought of Hemingway, I thought, wow, to be like Hemingway, not to be like Hemingway, but to, to understand the world the way he understood it made a lot of sense to me. I mean, I, I, the stoicism was what I admired in Hemingway. I mean, the Stoicism, at the end of the Farewell to Arms, which is one of the greatest love stories, I think, in, in fiction, when, when Frederick Henry's wife dies in childbirth in that hospital in Switzerland, he has to walk out into the rain and uh, to nothing. I mean, but he keeps... I mean, that's it's one of the most amazing, you know, episodes in, uh, in writing. And I don't think anybody, I don't know if anybody could read that book for the first time and not break down when they come to those, that last chapter in it. Well, what do these writers have in common except they are wrestling with the realities of the difficulties of life? That's right. And they approach them in different ways and they deal with them in different ways. And the, the problem is we're not reading comic They're not escapism. No. And they're not, we're not reading comedies, you know, that's the, the other thing. It's very hard to find great writers who are comic writers, certainly outside, you know, the theater, you know, in, uh, you know, it's just very hard. It's just not that, un, it's just not that common. 
because most of life is, you know, is hard. Life is hard. And uh, people have to deal with it. And some deal with it better than others. And writers try to... And writers are dealing with their own pain. So when you say, is it autobiographical? Of course it's autobiographical. But the difference between the writer and most of us, autobiographical, is the writer takes the life and turns it into fable. Most of us can't do that. So that makes... That separates them from shall we say, the mass of, of us who read and respond to it, but we can't make fables out of our lives. That's why everybody says, I've got a story to tell. Oh, I can write a book. And everybody thinks they can write a book because they've got a life and they've, you know, they have experiences. But to turn those experiences into fable or fiction, if you will, is no easy thing. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, obviously he is taking, you know, his experiences, he's taking the stories that he's witnessed and, you know, whether you want to call it fable, I mean, he is, I mean, it's certainly fiction, but he is, he's writing from experience and he does it profoundly and, and he does it well because at the end of the day, we are creatures who love story and that is just part of our DNA. So, you know, from my worldview, it's no surprise that my craft and trade is fundamentally a story. Now, I take it to be a true story, but it is a story of redemption. And it's got mountains and it's got valleys, but I spend all my days effectively knowing the intricacies of this story and then helping people understand where they fit into that story. And so it's no surprise to me that even someone who rejects the story of the Old and New Testament, and we could pick certainly any sort of religious text, but anyone who's going to reject that story, well, they don't go into neutral. They simply create their own stories because that's where all of us engage. We're not automatons or, you know, we're not, we want to be part of a story. And uh, I enjoy experiencing this. That's very well put, Aaron, and I think, I, I think you speak for not just for religious people, but for any people who are literate and who are sensitive to the world around them. We don't have to agree with all these stories, obviously. We don't have to agree with the points of view of the different writers, and there are shades of differences among them. Some are more compassionate, some are more hard-nosed, you know, some are, you know, more willing to, you know tolerate certain aspects of behavior. I think it's very interesting to me when I think about it. Robert Louis Stevenson, whom I spent a fair amount of time, you know, studying, and Henry James, who I also spent a fair amount of time studying. And what's most interesting to me is when they were asked individually, not as part of a survey, uh, Henry James was asked by somebody, you know, you, you, James, they think, well, you're a great man, you've written all these great books. What do you have to say to us? You know, what kind of advice, basically, are you going to offer? And he says, be kind, be kind, be kind. And Stevenson, when he wrote one of his later essays, you know, essentially the same thing, you know, to make one's, to make life, one's, one, to make people happier for your presence. It gets back to a code. Yeah, people spend time with these great writers, but they're not content to simply have a story told to them. They want to be told how to live. People want to know how to live. 
which is why the subtitle of our podcast is Books and Life. Now, we spend most of our time, you know, just talking about the books, but, you know, you and I are aware that at the end of the day, people want to know, they want to know how to live. You know, they're looking not just for a life, but they're looking for the best life, you know, and, um, you know, and to the extent there's wisdom, you know, there's wisdom to be gleaned from these stories. And, uh, and I hope from these conversations. So, Dad, that's probably a good place to wrap up. We have one more episode that we're going to release in this season on the short story. So we'd encourage you to stay tuned to, to find out what that's going to be very soon. But, Dad, I always appreciate the time and uh, look forward to talking to you soon, okay? Well, Aaron, it's great to see you. Take care. All right. Aloha. Aloha.